0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Sound Consulting.
1: Well, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Nina. New format. Look at this. Here we are. Squad together. Yeah, I know. And look, the good thing about the new format is... These buggers are going on holiday over the next few weeks, <laughs> yeah. so there'll only be two of us all over again for about six weeks. But besides that, we are in the new format and we're kicking off doing a couple of things today. We're going to talk uh, very briefly about um, some COVID issues that have arisen, some really quite concerning things that happened from one of our regulators, and then we're going to go and talk about restraints for the rest of the day, which is uh, it's going to be hard to so put your thinking caps on. Mm. But look, what we've seen, guys, over the last year is every jurisdiction line up and say, if a government mandates vaccination, it's lawful. Yep. And if yep. we correctly go through the process, it's lawful to require people to be vaccinated. The reason for that is to provide a safe workplace. Yep. We all agree on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There is, like there is Deputy President Dean, <laughs> Deputy, <laughs> who I, I promise never to mention yeah. again, who's not allowed to sit on these cases anymore, <laughs> who doesn't agree with that, but everyone else in the world does, all right? Yeah. Yep. So what we have saw, Matt, is the federal court chuck out one on a constitutional argument of government mandate. Yes,
2: that's right. Yes, yeah. so if you'd seen any of the anti-vax material at all over the last couple of year, well, months, it always referred to the Biosecurity Act and how it was inconsistent oh, yeah. with the public health directions
1: and thankfully the federal court had just yeah, they just on published line. one line which said, horseshit. Well, that's right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and, and right. Mina, we had the concreter's case, stand-down concreter's case, where a concreter mm-hmm. who... Yeah, she doesn't know. So no, I don't know yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so.
2: That's
1: okay. Refused, <laughs> to, get, all that. refused yeah. to get vaccinated and then said he'd been unlawfully stood down. In the Fair Work Commission published one line. What did they say? Yeah, people the same okay. thing. Yeah, yeah. Not dealing with this. yeah. But what's really concerning, of course, is that COVID affects one group of people acutely, which is casual workers. Yeah. And we're seeing National Cabinet meet because the federal government said we're well, scrapping the 750 payment which particularly goes to casual workers, and now we've seen this outrageous prosecution of a 36-year-old casual nurse by our own wonderful work safe mm-hmm. who thought it would be a good idea to prosecute a poor woman who, yes, had had positive PCR and, yes, was told not to come to work and, yes, did come to work and, yes, did not infect anyone they know about and what are they charged her with now?
0: Reckless endangerment. Reckless endangerment average for private duties.
1: Yeah. Which Actually, is just crazy. So she go to jail for oh. five years for not having enough money and so had to and come to work. And get
0: a 600K fine
1: mm. as well. Yeah. Oh. So, look, the pretty disgraceful thing, to be perfectly honest, throughout yeah. the oh, yeah. regulator, yeah. clearly was started during the time when everyone was, you know, highly sensitised yeah. to it, yeah. but yeah. they didn't have the good judgement to stop mm. now that everyone's got used to the fact. Because yeah. what this basically means is if you come to work with flu and there's someone who could be vulnerable, you can be sent to jail, and that sort of stuff is just crap. Oh, uh, it's like an it, extreme reaction, yeah. surely, Andrew. Clearly
0: trying to make an example.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, crazy. you know, a 36-year-old casual worker being made an example of is just shameful. Yeah, my, view, my view, I might oh, be yeah. wrong, and I know all the safety practitioners are going to go, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. <laughs> if you're going to do that, can you just show a curious face? That'd be nice. Not, <laughs> not Andrew with a bum face, all right? Okay, let's move on now to restraints because we're doing this over two parts. So today we're going to do much more of the technical stuff, so I want you to listen carefully because next week we're showing you how to manage it so it works. But the rule and restraints is really simple, and that is there is a rule of law a doctrine that says you cannot restrain a person from carrying out their job once they leave you. That's the rule, okay? Restraints as we use them I fall into a number of categories. They fall into protecting confidential information within organizational intellectual property. They fall into common law duties about how you behave. Okay, they're restraining people. But the ones we're talking about today are employment restraints and particularly restraints that go to don't compete, don't solicit clients, don't poach staff. Okay. So two things I want you to remember. The way to get around that doctrine is to show, and, and Matt will talk to you about what that is, what is a particular interest that is protected or can be protected. Okay. And the second thing is, is that reasonable to protect that? So we'll get more into that in a couple of seconds. But Nina. Why do we have a restraint
0: uh, well, in think, two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the pressure. It's really common question we get from clients because, as we all know, there is already common law duties and employment law contract clauses which protect intellectual property and confidential information. So they often say, why do we need to take the next step? And the simple answer is, although there are those protections in contractual and the common law, it is notoriously hard to enforce and defend.
1: After they've left employment.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, because these obligations obviously survive the termination of their employment. But there's all these disputes about what is confidential information or if they're not actually taking the confidential information when they leave, can they rely on information that they've remembered? Afterwards. Yeah, through
1: general know-how.
0: Yeah. And... Unfortunately, the cases say that, yes, they can do that. So, really, if you're wanting to push to the next step to force them to not compete with a competitor or to prevent them from stealing employees or clients, you have to go to the next step of having post-employment restraints. So, so
1: if we're sort of summing it up, the answer is everything looks good until you try to enforce it. (laughs) And the only way the courts will enforce a post-employment restraint is if you identify with clarity what that interest is, and Matt's going to talk to you in more detail about mm-hmm. what is that interest you protect, mm-hmm. and that the protection of it is reasonable in all the circumstances, mm-hmm. which looks at duration, area, and the nature of the interest you're trying to protect. Yeah. So we'll, we'll deal with that in a lot of detail, but what Nina's saying is there's a whole lot of people you don't need to restrain in your organisation, okay? Mm-hmm. There's just tons. Yep. You only need to restrain those people who have specific interests that create a vulnerability for your organisation in relation to competitors, Mm. that's all you can protect, and for time that is reasonable based on the nature of the business that Mm. you're in. Yeah. And if you don't do that with precision, you fail, which is the other point Nina will keep coming back to is don't use templates. They actually have to be crafted with real precision because the courts go in every word that was in it. So, Matt, where does the restraint go? Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, look, there's really two main avenues that we see restraints going because I think, look, the key point is, is unless you have one, there's nothing that sort of just exists in common law that you can rely on. So it means you've got to put it somewhere. Yeah. There's really two options that we put it. One is in the contract of employment and the other is in a deed.
1: Now okay, look, we just yeah. say so everyone knows what we're talking about. We say a restraint. A restraint yeah. says if Matt leaves FCW mm. lawyers, he will not approach or solicit any client of ours. Mm which has been part of the firm for 12 months. Mm. He will not go for a business that works in the same area that worked in which he works, and he will not poach Nina or other identifiable staff in the organisation should he go somewhere. Mm -hmm. So that's a classic restraint. Yeah, classic fault. Okay, so and what Matt's saying is, okay, there's two major places you can put that restraint and one is easier to enforce than the other. Yes. Over to you, Matt. Yes, that's right. Because you've
2: got to put them somewhere. Yeah. I think that's the real key. Yeah, because really yeah, if you don't put, we've them put them somewhere. Goodbye, like Matt! Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. I'm out the door. With yeah. 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 his, bar- <laughs>
1: his baskets carrying people. That's right. Yeah. Other yeah. solicitors <laughs> under one <water>. arm. Confidential <laughs>
2: information under the other. Back okay, Back to back Okay. okay. <laughs> Get your wrestling bill out. Sure, that's, yeah, your well, that's right. right. We'll twist it around next time. Yeah, so the two sources. So one is easier to enforce than the other. Now, more often than not, we do see them in employment contracts, okay, because people default to that. They go, well, look, I'm putting together a document. It says everything that I wanted to say about the employment and the employee, so let's put the restraint in there. But the error that people often fall to in doing so is that they're not properly drafted so as to clearly link the restraint
1: to a form of consideration, okay? okay so the consideration is a benefit. So in right. contract. If I offer something, it's not a contract unless that offer is accepted on the basis of something that is given. Yes. And that's usually money, status, a variety of different things. They're all forms of what are called consideration. Yeah,
2: exactly. And so there is consideration in an employment relationship generally. It's the salary that an employee or the wages that an employee gets paid. But what is the error that we see people fall into is they don't properly link the actual restraint and the obligations under the restraint to the payment of that salary. And it is more difficult because the salary is generally not paid after the employment ends. So you're asking someone to agree to something, to be bound by it after they stop receiving payment in accordance with the agreement. So we see a lot of error in terms of drafting and application of it in that
1: particular respect. And so where Matt's going with this is, and this is why templates don't work, is that goes into the recitals, of the introduction, which mm. explains, and that's called the evidence area of any contract, mm. which sets out what is the evidence and why this contract exists. Mm. So, if people just say employee agrees to work with employer B, and that's often what you see, it's Mm. just a letter of offer that says it. There's no connection with the consideration and the restraint will fail.
2: That's right. That's right. The
1: legal word is the consideration must feed the restraint.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So, that's why we see people use instead a deed, okay? A deed, a document that isn't required by law to have consideration, doesn't mean it has to look any different, and this is the most important part. The restraint should look exactly the same and follow all the rules that we'll be sort of explaining today. But if you put it into a deed document, it's a much simpler promise to enforce under the rules of the enforceability of deed. Let's just talk
1: about Qantas case at this yeah, marriage, because yes Because one of the other problems is people do use an employment contract. They, mm. And when they, you come in, they go, here's the, name, here's the employment mm. contract. Here's mm. the deed, which will mm. be signed contemporaneously. Yeah. Okay, and by the way, here's the policies and procedures and here's yeah. this and here's that. That's right. What did Qantas say about the level of connection? Well, that's right. So, if you've got these documents
2: and they have overlapping or similar clauses, as is what happened in the deed and in the employment contract in the Qantas case, court might say, well, actually, you read all of these together. So, instead of treating them as separate documents, you treat them as one and that can immediately undermine the intended effect of what you're trying to enforce. So, if your employment contract has one restraint and then you think, oh, I could get this a little bit better I'm going to put it in a deed after the fact or even contemporaneously. The court might say, well, actually, you've got to read this all as one and now what you've written between these two documents makes no sense. And the classic, we're not going to classic
1: one it. for that would be you do one which has very detailed deed of confidential information and yep. yet you've got a confidential information IP clause in your That's contract, right. yep. which is inconsistent. The court mm. goes, well, what do I read into this? Yep. And they'll read it down to the lowest level and not read it up. But what Swanus right. did was make it very clear though, part of a of document. Which had independent rights, mm. but held the jurisdiction together in the one place to That's have it. exactly right. So, yeah. all I'm asking, I guess, is don't have two sets of documents on your computer and just go stick, bang, bang, and one has the law of Victoria mm. and one has the law of New no. South Wales. Mm, yeah, Very common thing to do. That. Yeah, okay. We say that a lot. Okay, yeah. So, remember this process involves consideration, it requires thought, it requires symmetry, mm-hmm. and it requires crafting. Yep. Do them with the one thought in mind. So, great amount. So, who do we restrain then?
0: Well, there's a whole bunch of different people and companies you can restrain. So, pretty much anyone who has access to the business's goodwill can be restrained. So, that includes employees and contractors. Yes. But like, so say
1: contractors as well, because there's an argument yeah. that says competition, well, you can't restrain a contractor. Is that not true?
0: No, definitely not true. There are cases on this very point that say, although it has to be drafted very carefully to balance the goodwill of the principal versus the goodwill of the contractor, it is perfectly fine to restrain them if it is necessary to protect the legitimate interests. And that makes sense, control. isn't it?
1: Because you often bring in highly specialised contractors yeah. who you reveal... intellectual property and confidential information you wouldn't say to others. Yeah. So have you thought about that, guys? Have you thought about when you get your contractor in because it's the perfect place to put it inside the contractor contract because that is the consideration. Yes,
0: 100%. And like you said before, it has to be very targeted and individualised. We often see really shockingly...
1: (laughs) Not businesses. that it's being drafted by FM. <laughs> no, no, not, no. Not, right no. not by FM because not they'd be no. out.
0: Exactly. But <laughs> businesses having the same restraints that they'd have for like a CEO for a junior accounts manager, for example, yeah. which doesn't make any sense because it wouldn't be reasonable given the limited amount of confidential information they'd access, trade secrets, all of that stuff, and it's just way too broad. So any restraints have to consider the role of the employee, if it's a junior employee, how much they're making, how much exposure they have to the goodwill, all of that. Otherwise, it's never going to be enforced.
1: Why don't we follow through with Matt on that? Because I think that's a chance, Matt. What what, what can we protect, Matt? Yeah. Well, so look, it's a real... What can we protect and what don't we
2: need to protect? Well, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's also the key question, (laughs) Andrew. So what we commonly see is a real misconception around restraints where people think, or employers in particular think, that they really can just impose it on a person because they, they either want to sort of damage a good employee if a good employee leaves, so effectively a revenge motive, or, you know, they, they just want nothing, to have... Nothing wrong
1: with revenge,
2: Oh, look, yeah, you know, it's a, a, a no, disbesser... It I <laughs> Oh, sorry, no, it's bad, know, bad, sorry. A disbesser <laughs> cold, or simply just to protect themselves from competition, okay? Yeah. So it's got to have the legitimate interest that sits underneath it, which goes to your point earlier, Andrew. And there's really sort of three categories of this that have been recognised by the courts, sort of the sort of the history of the enforcement of these types of clauses. So one is where the employees have access to confidential information that goes beyond mean know how, which we spoke about earlier. The second is where the employee has personal contact with key customers. Can I go back to the first so
1: mean know how is is like a toolbox that you had when you turned up. That's right. It yeah. might get slightly sharper as you go through, but it's the same set of tools you entered the work. Yeah. With. Yeah. Whereas if I work in a business and result of my employment being the CFO, I work on developing the margins in sales, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then that's not just me and know-how, that's not just the tools I had, mm-hmm. I've created or been part of the creation of something which is intrinsic to the business. Mm-hmm. That's legitimate interest, isn't it?
2: That's right, yeah. yeah. That's the. Sorry, Mara, I no, no, because I, I think the know-how points are really important one. we say that, and it's got to have some meaning, and yeah. really, that's a really great example of it, Andrew. So, yeah, then the second is, yeah, if you have the person has personal contact with customers, with a connection as such that they could influence that customer's relationship with the business. And then the third is sort of a legitimate interest of protecting your key staff from being poached or taken away by other staff. So they're the three key legitimate interests. And importantly, that's where you've got to start. You've got to start this query about, do I put a post-employment restraint in? at looking at one or more of those three categories
1: of legitimate interests. And you end up in a business a 1,000 people, actually looking at around about 15. That's right. You yeah. don't. You don't That's end up right. looking at five, six hundred. Yeah. Yeah. And remember, when you force people, when you put duties in front of people which are not, which don't respond to them, which don't don't mean you're just hurting people. You're telling people things. Oh, exactly. Which makes yeah. you make you look like a bully. Yeah. Whereas, if I'm coming to Matt, these two guys are both senior associates, both have direct relations, and I start saying, look. And we don't use restraints in our business, I should say, because we believe we don't make people happy they're allowed to go. But if we were, I'd be going, okay, Nina, you've got these five or six clients. We're gonna hand over more, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna need a restraint to protect those clients, our yep. client. Yep. It makes sense. Yeah. So it's a and Nina's gonna say, well, if you're gonna make me an SA and you're gonna pay me that extra money, I understand that's part of the price of my escalation through the business, mm-hmm. my promotion. I'm gonna get it. But for somebody who's a PA, they're going to look at it and go, yeah. what, are, what are you talking You've about? got to
2: contextualise it, I think, mean, yeah. is the key point. And the point that goes to go this is you can have drafted post-employment restraint in the world, such as one drafted by us, <laughs> uh, but it, it will go nowhere. <laughs> yeah. It will go nowhere if you don't have the legitimate interest. The court will not
1: enforce it. Let's move on to reasonableness. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, so there's, there's three you categories. You just kill time again. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yep, that, That's all right. Reasonable is the next <laughs> question on the next part of the equation. There's three real parts to the reasonable result. The first is what are the activities that you're trying to protect? The second is how long are you trying to enforce it for? And the third is the geographical area. Now, for an enforce a post-employment restraint to be reasonable and to be enforceable, each of those three elements must themselves be independently reasonable, okay? If one is unreasonable and the other two are reasonable, it renders the entire thing
1: unreasonable. So let's use a, a very simple example we act for a hairdresser. Yep. Hairdresser competes with a number of other hairdressers, mm-hmm. but is in Croydon and in that Croydon area draws all their clients from a four to five kilometre radius. Yep. Or 80 percent of them. Mm-hmm. And they do hair work once every four weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what hairdressing? Mm-hmm. Okay, that say they don't do perms. So anything else but perms. So there's the activities. They do tinting, colouring, curling. Sure. <laughs> So much With no hair, how do I know this? Yeah, things? she went right, right back oh, to the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. So <laughs> couldn't include permitting, Okay, yep. That's not what they do. Average turnover is four weeks, so six weeks would be reasonable to force somebody to look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the area can't be broader than where they can reasonably collect the majority of their clients. Anything broader than that won't work. So that's an Mm -hmm. example, isn't it,
2: It's a great example, Andrew, and it really had us home this point which we've been making, which is context is key and templates are useless in this particular space, okay, because the reasonableness of those three factors, the activities that you're seeking to restrain, the duration and the geography of it, they all must be contextual. You know, geography is a really great one. If my business only operates in Victoria and New South Wales but my restraint says all of Australia, unlikely to be found. In and I think we've
1: just knocked over your next thing, Matt, which is what can we stop an employee from doing how long for and where?
2: Yes, well, it's all a part of the Okay, yes, done. Yeah, okay, okay, we're, we're back, on time. We're, we're back on time. we're
1: back on time now. How do we draft
0: them? <laughs> 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 we've got a good slide up.
1: Not yet, but so going to get there. That's
0: a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a basically a presumption under the common law that restraints just aren't enforceable and it's up to the enforcing party to prove that it is both reasonable and in the best interests of the parties and the public. So these are just some key tips for you all to see what you should avoid and what to include. How short are we in time? No, I think we're well, reasonably
1: short of time. So what I'm going to do rather than go through all of these things is to say, look, the three key issues here really are these. Have clauses which have variety in them. and yeah. They come yeah. from restraining straining time, place, person. Only put in true clients that you're genuinely competing against yeah, yeah, right, clients. That's right, yeah. And look at the indices of your turn in business, like the hairdresser, to look at time. I'm going to jump and move on, partly because um, Kate's asked a great question here, which is personally goes through an employer. Yes, Kate, every time somebody changes their role, you reissue the employment contract, you refresh it, mm-hmm. and you attach the new job description. So there's clarity for workers' comp, safety, and employment law. Mm-hmm. I can speak to Margaret about the case. About yeah, okay, will do it's that, It's a fun yeah. one it's and somewhere. I'm familiar so, with it. We'll come back to it. I think we're over to you. We've done you, haven't we? And we're yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, so we're, we're yeah. back on. So we're about to go on the case, Steve, but what I do want you to understand is three things we want to get through today. One is these are not templates. These no. are crafted around what is no. legitimate interest and what is reasonable. Mm-hmm. The second is... Next week, we're going to talk about how you manage this so you have an effective way of execution when someone does the mm-hmm. wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to get to the stage is when a person leaves, they know you will take action yeah. if you breach it. And we'll talk a lot more about that next week, okay, yeah. and what yeah. that what that looks like. So let's go to the case study, Soph, if we could.
0: So Vince was the Victorian sales manager for See Through Glass, STG, a commercial window and shower screen business. He worked closely with Fabio, STG's head of rotations, in quoting for large commercial sites for volume builders, STG's core client base. Vince had a restraint with a cascading time restraint of 12, 6 and 3 months and a cascading area restraint of Australia, the Eastern Seaboard and Victoria. The restraint prevented Vince from working for any competitor in the windows and shower screen business who operated throughout Australia and purchased, not manufactured glass, approaching any client of STG directly or indirectly in the 12 months prior to departure and approaching any other STG employees. A competitor company, Best Glass, also supplied commercial builders, predominantly those working on high-rise developments. STG had only sold 100K of windows and doors into high-rise developments over the last three years, all in Victoria. Vince had acquired the names and addresses of all clients and connected with them on LinkedIn. Best Glass approached Vince and offered him the role of national sales manager. Vince accepted the role and recruited Fabio to go with him. STG sent a letter demanding an undertaking to BG and Vince, requiring it and him not to undertake a role with BG, employ Fabio, or in any way compete with SCG. Both refuse the undertakings.
1: So let's get on Slido so you can vote. And by the way, these are not easy answers today. No. So there's no. no clear answers. It's more the discussion that's important. Yeah, they're very tricky. They're very tricky.
2: Have you seen that emoji case, Andrew, the unfinished
1: whistle one? Yes, I it
2: did. It's so amazing, isn't it? I can't believe they thought they could terminate someone's employment because they didn't use it's the right smiley. emojis. Yeah, I mean, it's a – I chuckled when I read the summary of it and thought, oh, my goodness, it's, yeah, a, it's a real classic one.
1: For a large packaging business, this is 14 years ago, yeah. the HR manager used to sign off with us when it just came out. Oh. A smiley emoji. Yeah. And the owner of the business sent them a letter, a warning letter, not to you. Oh, my goodness. Your role as an HR manager is not to sort of involve yourself in frivolous friendships. That's oh, so. my goodness. <laughs> one of the funniest letters I've ever read. That's amazing. Yeah, it? it was it's a bad. 10 glass of wine letter. Yeah, absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah. Look, I don't think you'll see Millennial and Gen Z <laughs> because having <laughs> be a no <no-energy> emoji policy.
1: <laughs> All right, we're here. We're back. Okay, question one. Could STG seek an injunction to prevent breaches of the restraint? Can I just say to you, the rule about getting an injunction, which is an order stopping someone, is the damages would not be an appropriate remedy, mm-hmm. okay? So who am I going to do on this one? Oh,
0: uh, for me. So it's, it's
1: over to you. Yeah. yeah,
0: so it's two parts to this. So with the first part about the contacting the clients, it is quantifiable what the damages would be. They've only worked the same $100,000 for each year for over the last three years, so damages would be appropriate in that instance, so you couldn't get an injunction. But you definitely would have probable grounds to succeed on an injunction to stop Fabio leaving. With okay, him. now the,
1: the test for injunction is first, is there a prima facie breach, mm-hmm. okay, and the second thing is?
0: a balance of convenience. Yeah. yeah, okay.
1: So the second thing that would stop an injunction is when you're looking at businesses turning over millions of dollars and we're mm. talking about $100,000, yeah. the court's are going to go, you're wasting our time. Yeah. It's yeah. not the CEO yeah. walking out the door. Yeah. yeah. So, know, you know, you've got, a, you've got a method of pursuing in damages. It might yep. take you a while to get the right discovery, but you can do it. Yeah, Why are you wasting our time? You never mm. get it. Okay. Question two. If Best Glass did not approach any STG clients for 12 months directly or indirectly, would that prevent STG from successfully bringing a claim? So I think if I think this should have read, if Best Glass undertook yeah. not to approach any STG clients, so I'm sorry about that. That got lost in translation. So undertakings were given by Best Glass. Yep, yep. And they said no, we won't either directly or indirectly. Yep. Now, indirectly means Matt won't go and see them, and also Nina won't go and see them because Matt's given them their name. Yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah. And so, yeah, if that undertaking was given, Andrew, it it would likely prevent a successful claim against um, the company and the individual, because that goes to the balance of convenience point around the injunction. The court would say, well, look, you've you've got this other enforceable document now, like, you know, from a party that wasn't even a party to your contract that said, we're not going to do this. You know, you've got that promise. You can, you know, if they breach that promise, damages can follow the event for that. But In the absence of it, in the presence of it. So it's
1: one of the things you do when someone does, when you think someone's about to breach, you immediately issue them a letter of demand that sets out what their legal obligations are, Mm, at common law, under equitable law, under corporations law. That's right. Even under the Crimes Act for the destruction of documents. Yep, Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. And then you go through and say, and we require these undertakings. Mm. And don't be dumb and make them too onerous because you don't need it. It's a very neat thing Mm. that you're trying to do. Mm. When you get those undertakings, don't say no <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, because yeah. it does trigger the balance of the convenience because yeah. you've got somebody who's showing a disrespect for the law, mm. and the balance of convenience swings right back in your favour. Yeah, when someone says by their actions, mm. actual or constructively, I mm. will not comply with the law. Yeah,
2: and, and put it, the new employer on notice as well. Yeah, that's so right. Which is something we do quite often when you've got.
1: Yeah, to say and we. Actually, like. So we're doing talking about that is, and that's in question four. We'll come to can Best Glass be restrained from employing Fabio.
0: Yes, so they join into the proceedings, but even more so if they've already been notified of the restraint.
1: Yeah. So we'll talk again next week about the importance of putting within contracts and telling people, you know, if you leave us, you must advise your next employer immediately of your contract and mm-hmm. your restraints. Mm-hmm. And then if Best Glass reached out to Fabio, they'd be interfering in a contract, mm-hmm. which would be a tort, which is much easier to enforce mm-hmm. than normal yep. restraint, okay? Yeah. You can see this is a tough area, isn't it? This is not an easy area. No. no. It's overlap between statute, mm. equity, and common law. And mm. most people say, well, what's equity and common law? They're actually two independent jurisdictions that sit within a court mm. and they, they look at problems in a different way. Oh, yeah. One yeah. looks at us in a healing way, equity. Yeah. One looks at it in a black letter way, yeah. common law, and says this is the rule. So mm. when they come together, if you're not acting in a good way, equity will go against you. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's as an employer. So if you're Mm. acting with what they call clean hands, you come in and you try and be sneaky, court, Mm. bang. The equity court will belt you out of it. Okay. Now, the courts have all three jurisdictions that they're playing with. Okay, question four. Could Vince be required to delete details of all clients acquired during his time with STG from his phone and on LinkedIn? So so again, the answer to this one's yes. Now, it's going to turn entirely
2: on how specific the actual restraint clause is around these details identifying that those client details are themselves confidential information and identifying in the post-employment restraint that they're not to have access to or use those. But the answer certainly is yes, particularly from the phone. LinkedIn a little bit more disputable, again, depending on what the language of the post-employment restraint is. There's nothing that prevents an employer from being so specific about social media or even LinkedIn in particular in the context of the post-employment restraint, but entirely proper, given that that information would have,
1: for reasons we'll discuss a bit more next uh, next week, the requisite level of confidence. So there's a really interesting part in this, and that is it's very hard to get an injunction to make somebody do something. It's yeah. easy to get an injunction to prevent them. Stop someone, yeah. So when you're asking for the removal of things, if that's not within the contract, if there hasn't been training that sits within a policy and mm-hmm. procedure that talks mm-hmm. about that is the confidential information you're mm. protecting, and you will do this, and they refuse to do it or undertake, and because they're on LinkedIn, you can't see what they've done. Mm. Then that undertaking is incredibly powerful, and then the court will grant the injunction because it's got the clarity, yep. but courts are very reluctant to get an injunction that says you are to do something. Mm. Therefore, the contract must be ironclad when you do it. All right, guys. That's what it is. That's a hard go today. And I know that's hard work. And it's usually over four or five weeks of law school. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So you two have done an incredible (laughs) job (laughs) of getting that down because I knew what you were talking about. (laughs) Excellent. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And we look forward to seeing you all next week. Who's coming next week, by the way? That's no, it's all three of us. Oh, yeah, I all
2: three of have been telling
1: me again all all that. No, oh, we've got you've short run of all three of uh, Yeah, That's oh, yeah, yeah. the first time they've ever given me notes. All
2: right. Yeah. Thank Please you don't me. forget to react. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, react. Then thinky face. Thinky face. Thinky face. I, thinky I face love the Thinky thoughts. face. There's the love heart. There's the care. Yeah. Yeah. I, need love heart. I need love hearts. Andrew and I will appreciate the ego boost from the funny thing. Yeah, okay.
1: See you later, guys. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.